I don't really watch a lot of TV or Netflix or Amazon Prime or any of the shows that are commonly watched nowadays. And whenever I say that to a group of people, usually the first thing people start doing is listing the shows that I really must be watching. So they'll be like, well, you watch this, right? So particularly my students, I'll say, well, I don't really watch TV. And they go, oh, well, you watch The Bachelor. Like, well, no, I, I don't. Uh, well, then they'll say, well, well, you watch this, right? I'll say, no, I, when I say I don't watch any programs, I mean I don't watch any of them. And inevitably, one of the choices that they throw out there is Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> of course, you watch Dancing with the Stars, as many of you are thinking. Of course, Rick, you watch Dancing with the Stars. But I don't. Never seen it. But I understand the premise. People dance with stars. <laughs> exactly. I mean, how much more complicated is it? I feel like that's pretty much the essence of it. I'm sure that there are judges and eliminations and all of that as well. But I did read this week that in the upcoming, episode, or upcoming season that Mr. T was one of the dancers. He is looking fine. He's uh, over, over 60 years old now, Mr. T. I have fond memories of Mr. T. Mr. T first appeared on the scene in the 1980s as Clubber Lang. He was the opponent in Rocky III. And it is in Rocky III that Mr. T first utters what becomes his catchphrase, I pity the fool. I pity the fool is how he said it. I pity the fool. He says it in Rocky III, and then it sort of continues throughout his acting career, particularly in a show I did watch, The A-Team. Now that, that was quality television. I don't know how well Mr. T dances, but I know that he was right when he says, we ought to pity the fool. We ought to feel badly for the fool. We should feel sad for the fool because the fool is pathetic. The fool is deserving of our sympathy. But there is a different, when Mr. T says pity the fool, he doesn't generally mean I feel badly for the, pool, for the fool. When he says I pity the fool, he's sort of disparaging the fool. Like it is so pathetic that it kind of makes him angry. Like I pity the fool. It's sort of a frustration that he has with the fool. In the context of the first time he says it is he's saying, um, how do you feel about fighting Rocky Balboa? And his answer is, I pity the fool. Who would dare to come into the ring with me? The fool needs correction, but will not take it. And you certainly do not want to hang out with the fool. The fool is bad company. But he is not the only bad company in the book of Proverbs. He has at least two friends, the scoffer and the slacker. And I like to imagine these guys hanging out in the back alley. They're smoking, they're roughhousing, they're looking for trouble. The fool, the slacker, and the scoffer, they kick cats, sleep through deadlines. They never can quite seem to get out of the dimness of the back alley, and they're not sure that they even want to. They kind of like it back there. They kind of like lingering around the edges. 
they're the three people your mother wouldn't let you hang out with growing up. Are you hanging out? Uh, are you hanging out with a scoffer? No, you're not. You couldn't when you were little. You couldn't do sleepovers at the house of the mocker. And yet, they sort of have this sort of bad boy mentality. Like in the movies, they're the ones that are sort of the rough-edged guy. That's kind of cool. Like, the, you know, as you're watching the movie, you're kind of like, I kind of want to be like him. And the girls kind of want to defy their parents by being with him. Because he just has that sort of dangerous edge to him. The scoffer, the slacker, and the fool. But they are not actually cool cats that hang out in the alley. They're actually the three stooges. They're stooges. If you remember what a stooge, we probably remember the three stooges. These are like three stooges without the nyuk, nyuk, nyuk. That's, that's the kind of stooge I'm talking about. Um, they figure in tragic comedy. They're tragic and they're comedic. They're so pathetic and they're so comedically pathetic that, you, that, it's, that it's sad. That you almost feel bad for the slacker, the fool, or the scoffer. Because they can't quite get their lives together. They can't quite get it right. So it kind of vacillates between them being funny and them being tragic. It's a kind of tragic comedy. So we're going to meet each of these three guys today and spend a few minutes with the fool, a few minutes with the scoffer, and a little bit more time with the slacker. So let's start with the fool. The fool's a little hard to nail down in the book of Proverbs because the idea of foolishness undergirds, or maybe I actually should say undermines, so many of the other good things of wisdom. So it's the fool who speaks unwisely. It's foolishness that causes unwise speech in us. There's one proverb that I like that says, a fool ought to just keep silent because if he does, people won't know he's a fool. But as soon as he speaks, he's told everybody how foolish he is. So the foolishness of a fool undermines our speech. The foolishness of the fool creates quarrelsomeness. They're the shame of their family in Proverbs. They ask for a beating in the way that they act. They waste their money. The fool can't even be trusted to accurately deliver a message. So the fool causes all kinds of problems. So what is the root issue in foolishness that brings out all of these other problems? I think it is this. The fool, or foolishness, is living outside the creator's order and still thinking that you'll succeed. It's living outside the creator's order and still thinking that you'll succeed. Let me explain this for a moment. We first, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the root. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we discussed that the fear of God is the recognition that God is the establisher and the sustainer of wisdom. He's the purveyor of wisdom. We do not create wisdom, we derive it from our creator. And so God, as creator, alongside of wisdom, has created a world order. He has created an orderliness to creation. There's a way that creation works, the physical creation. There's a way that it works. It is foolish to think that you can operate within God's creation in a way that's counter to his creation and still succeed. You look like a fool. Let me exemplify. This is your ordinary tennis ball. Uh, Please observe it. There's nothing magical about it. I'm not going to do a magic trick, by the way. 
This is a normal tennis ball. Now, in the book of Proverbs, there's the simple and there's the foolish. And they're different. If I said to you, all conditions being as they are right now in this room, if I were to let go of this ball, what would happen? A simple person might say, it's going to float. To which I would let go of the ball, and it would not float. To which the simple might say, show me that again. And I'll say to the simple, what do you think is going to happen? And the simple might say, it's going to float. And I'll say, watch. And eventually, the simple would see this and go, I get it. Ask me again. And when I say, what will happen this time, the simple would have learned and said, it will drop. Not so the fool. The fool will say, it'll float. And you drop it, and you say, now let me show what will happen now. And the fool will say, I think it'll float this time. You do it again, and the fool says, I think it'll float. And you do it again and again and again until you, as the ball dropper, finally say, you're a fool. How many times do I have to drop this thing before you understand the created order? That all other circumstances being the same, when you let go of a ball, it will drop. This is the created order that God has established. A fool does the same thing spiritually. A fool says, you know what? I gossiped last time and everything blew up in my face. But this time, that won't happen. This time, things will go well. This time, the ball will float. A fool's the one that says, well, the last few times I went to the mall, I overspent my credit limit. I got myself in all kinds of money debt, and I got into all kinds of serious issues. But this time, when I go to the mall, I won't do that. This time, it'll all work out okay. This time, it'll float. Spiritually, the fool does the same thing because God's created order for the earth. He has a created order of spirituality and morality. It's called wisdom. And the fool says, I see the created order of wisdom. But this time, this time, this time, it will float. And we would say, you're a fool. When you go out of control with your anger, the same result that happened the last times you did that are going to happen again. The same things that happened the last time you backstabbed somebody to get ahead at work, it will happen again. You are a fool to think that you can somehow sidestep this system because it's God's created order of wisdom. You are a fool to say, next time, It's going to float. Proverbs 26.11 says this. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. How's that for vivid? So here's my challenge for this alley dweller, for you to think about. Is there an area of your life where you've sort of slipped into your own reality? One that's different than the spiritual world you actually live in. One where you're saying, this time it will work. 
Is there some area of your life where you're saying, this time my scattershot, scattershot anger will work. This time my gossip will get me ahead. This time my spouse won't mind if I do that. You know, if he or she minded the last 12 times, she's probably going to mind the next 12 times. Is there a place where you need to submit yourself to the created order of wisdom? Is there some area of your life where you've become a fool? All right. Alongside the fool, there's the scoffer. Depending on the translation that you have in front of you, a scoffer is also known as the mocker or the scorner. So scoffer, mocker, scorner. If I were to use the most contemporary language, we would call him snarky. This guy is the snark. He takes the tone of, quote, nasty and knowing. That's a quote from a book entitled Snark. The goal of the scoffer, this is the goal of the scoffer. The scoffer does not just want to be right. He wants to be right, and then he wants to let you know that he's right. The mocker just doesn't want to be correct. He wants to triumphantly be correct. He wants to do the dance of joy on you because he is correct. The goal of the scoffer is not just to have conversation and to engage with conversation, but to dominate the conversation, to show disdain to all who might disagree. In short, the scoffer or the scorner is insufferable to be around when they are right. You cannot deal with this person when they are right because they will not let you forget how right they are and how often they are right and how right right is when they are right. (laughs) This is at least in part because the scoffer's goal is to feed his own arrogance. It's the haughty eyes that Barbie shared about. Proverbs 21:24 says this. Mockers are proud and haughty. They act with boundless arrogance. Boundless. You have probably all experienced being around a person even if for just a little while who is hard to be around because when they're right, they have to be right loudly. It's a kind of boundless arrogance. But here's the struggle with the mocker. Their boundless arrogance stretches even further. They are insufferable to be around when they are right, but they are insufferable to be around when they are wrong. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 says, anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects the wicked will get hurt. So don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. But correct the wise And they will love you. The scoffer does not take correction. Even when they are wrong, they find a way to make it sound right. That's what I meant. That's what I was saying. Weren't you listening? That's what I was saying. Or I think I'm right too. There's no correcting a mocker. Reasoning with them, according to Proverbs, is like reasoning with a drunk person. That's Proverbs 20 verse 1. Reasoning with a mocker is like reasoning with a drunk person. And so what's the ultimate result? They end up alone. The proverb says, you need to steer clear of these people. 
don't bother trying to correct them. And they think about it, if they can't be tolerated when they're right, and they can't be tolerated when they're wrong, then there's no tolerating these people. Proverbs 22.10 suggests that you need to throw the mocker out of your community because he'll bring the community down. You put him out of the community. But the greatest danger of being a scoffer is in Proverbs 3.34 where it says that the Lord will mock the mocker but is gracious to the humble. Boundless arrogance does not motivate the graciousness of the Lord. And so, we take a moment to assess. Is there an area in your life where being right is not quite enough? You need to be victoriously right. You need to be dance of joy right. And maybe a different question is, is there a person in your life where you just can't allow yourself to be right with them? That when you're right with them, you are really right. Do you have some area of balanced arrogance? Or is there an area in your life where you are not open to receiving instruction? Even when the correction is presented to you with wisdom. Okay. That is the fool and that is the scoffer. And now let's delve in a little deeper in the alley. As you go back and you've sort of avoided the scoffer, you've stepped away from the fool, you're kind of seeing what dangers lie ahead, and then you trip. And you look down, and sprawled on the ground is the slacker. You step back to see that he's dozing, as you would expect slackers to be doing. Now, slacker is my word. Proverbs does not use the word slacker. It uses an even more interesting one, sluggard. A sluggard. This is never a good comparison, people. Little, little husbandly, husbandry advice. Never is comparing your wife to a slug a good thing. I don't care if you're trying to say she's a beautiful slug. It's not going to work. There is never a time where a slug is a good thing. And they're never fast. Sentences never said ever until right now. Hey, look at that slug Go. First time that sentence has ever been said. (laughs) Slothful is another word used for the sluggard. Compares to another animal, of course, the sloth. No one hurries to see the sloth at the zoo. No kids go bouncing through the front gates wanting to see the sloth. A couple reasons for that. One is it's not going anywhere. It'll be there when you get there. Sloths, the animals, they can stay still for so long that algae grows on their hair. And then, instead of going to get food, they just eat the algae off themselves. Now, this is a system of laziness that they've worked out, I think. That is, I mean, it's sort of impressive in some ways. Slothfulness, sluggardliness, slackerliness, these, these are not compliments, Proverbs 24, 30 to 32 paints this little picture. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, the ground covered with nettles, its stone wall broken down. 
Then I saw and considered it. I looked and I received instruction. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to spend some time at the house of the slugger, just as the proverbist encourages us to do. So imagine that you are sort of pulling up a spot on the curb across from their house. And you're going to observe and be instructed by the sluggard. What does life look like for a sluggard? Proverbs 26, 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard on his bed. Remember tragic, comedic kind of picture? This is what we've got here. He's not tied to his bed or anchored to his bed. He is hinged to it. The best he can do is sort of turn over. The The slacker is the king of the snooze button. You can set the iPhone every 15 minutes, but they'll just turn it off one by one. Or he's tied to the lazy boy or to the couch with the remote control. True confession here. How many of you ever watched 15 minutes or a half hour or even an hour of a program that you had no desire to watch, but you couldn't find the remote and you were too lazy to look for it? You've all done it. You've all done it. So there you lay or sit watching an infomercial on the turbo cooker because you're like, I don't know, the remote, I don't know. Honey, know where the remote is? Kids? Anyone? so pathetic. It's desperate. It's stooge-like, right? Another glimpse of the sluggards. Proverbs 19.24. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he will not even bring it back up to his mouth. So this is bad. So let's, you're still on the couch, hinged there. You're hinged to your couch. You're watching an infomercial on an omelet maker because you can't find the remote. But fortunately, you have a popcorn bowl next to you. You reach in, you dive in, you grab that handful, and all of a sudden, as a sluggard, you have the realization, wait a minute, I have to bring that hand back up to my mouth. I'm not doing that. I'll just leave it there. Ironically, you still want the popcorn. Proverbs says that the sluggard's appetite is never fulfilled. He wants all the good things of life. He wants the basic things of life. He just doesn't want to do the work that's required to get that, those things. It's, it's lamentable, and it's laughable, and it's the life of a stooge. So what happens when you try to tell the sluggard about his lazy ways? What happens when you go up to him and say, get off the couch, get some work down, done, go down the street, visit your mother? Do something with your life. You know what the response is? Be very quiet. Look at Proverbs 22, 13, but do it quietly. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square. So I'm just staying here. As a teacher, you can imagine we hear a variety of excuses for all kinds of things. And some teachers have gone to writing down some of these excuses. Here's a few. Dear school, 
Please excuse John for being absent January 28th, 29th, 30th, 31, 32, and 33. Excuse Roland from PE for a few days. Yesterday he fell from a tree and he misplaced his hip. Where'd that thing go? It's here a second ago. And this was my favorite because I feel like it could happen at my house. Please excuse Jennifer for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch. And when we got that paper on Monday, we thought it was Sunday. (laughs) There were lions in Israel, not generally hanging out in the public square. So when the slacker says... I don't want to go outside because I might get pounced on by a lion. It would be akin to you saying that as well. I'm scared of lions in the public square. Clearly, it's a rationalization. It is an excuse and not even a very good one. You don't even have the energy to create a good rationalization. But in all of this humor, as with any of these stooges, it ends in a kind of tragedy. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says this. Sluggards do not plow in season. So at harvest time, they look and have nothing. And I think, I want you to notice the wording of this proverb, because the power of it, I think, is in the wording. It does not say, it does not say, the sluggard does not plow in season, therefore there's no crop. It says, the sluggard does not plow in season, but at harvest time, what does he do? He goes out expecting there to be a crop. So if we're across the house of the sluggard, we watch him sleep half the year, miss harvest time, rationalize about why he's living his life. But when it's time for harvest, he finally pulls himself up, staggers out of his house, goes to his fields, and expects good things to be there. And we watch as his face falls confused. I have no food. Ultimately, the story of the sluggard is a tragic one. So what have we learned from our observation? Well, we've learned that a sluggard tends not to get started. He's hinged to his bed, after all. The sluggard tends not to finish. He puts his hand in the bowl, but doesn't bring it back out. He rationalizes this behavior. There's a line in the street. But then is surprised when life goes poorly. Where's my harvest? So looking at this list, I think we need to ask ourselves, in light of the sluggard, is there an important area of your life where you are sluggardly? Is there something in your life that you need to get started It's time. Or is there something in your life that you need to finish? Or is there an area where you are rationalizing your lack of effort? Or are you being foolishly disappointed that something's not working out the way you thought it would when you've actually put very little effort into that thing? That last one's kind of profound to me. Because I hear people saying, ah, that relationship's not going very well. And part of me wants to say, or maybe I do say, what has been your investment in that relationship? 
Are you expecting a harvest when you've done no planting in that relationship? Are you expecting something to improve in your life when you've been sluggardly about the investment side of things? You're just expecting the harvest. Is there an area of your life where you've been expecting and kind of disappointed that things aren't going that well, but if you look at it, you realize, I really haven't been investing in that area. One final challenge. I know what part of you might be feeling when you talk about sluggardliness, and that is, Rick, I'm really busy. Sluggardliness feels like the last problem on my list. I go from the, from the first alarm in the morning to the last moment of the night, and my life is full. I am busy. But I think there's a little confusion when we say that. And here is there's confusion. Busyness is not the opposite of sluggardliness. In fact, busyness can often be the disguise of sluggardliness. Because you make yourself busy in all of these things because you don't want to do all of these things. Bill Hybels, in a book, his book about Proverbs called Making Life Work, calls it selective sluggardliness. Selective. You choose which area of your life to be a sluggard in, and then you get busy working in all these other areas, and you fill your life with those things. One of the reasons that selective sluggardliness is so dangerous is that if enough areas of our life look good enough, then we start to ignore maybe important areas that don't function quite right. We try to use what we might call the 9 out of 10 excuse. You could say to me right now, Rick, I'm doing 9 out of 10 things right, so lay off. We would say, cut me some slack. Er, <laughs> right? Cut me some slack. I'm doing nine out of ten things right. And I am sympathetic to that. I long to do nine out of ten things right. But let's say you've arrived there and you're doing nine out of ten things well. You're doing nine out of ten things right. That is not a good metric. That is not a helpful metric. Because the profound question is this. What is the tenth thing that you're not doing? That's the question. What is the tenth thing? If the tenth thing is painting your, your, the bedrooms in your house the newest color, that's great. That can be the tenth thing. If it's winning the Fantasy Football League championship, that can be the tenth thing. If it's binge-watching Game of Thrones, that can be the tenth thing. That can be the thing that you don't get to. But there's three areas I want to challenge you. Is your 10th thing the area where you're slacking, right? So that's the 10th thing. You're doing 9 out of 10. Is your 10th thing a relational area of your life? Have you degraded some important relationship in your life to being the 10th thing? You're watching Game of Thrones, and you've won the championship for three years, but there's this 10th thing, but you're like, well, I'm busy with those other things. Has the 10th thing become a relational area of your life? Is the 10th thing a character area of your life? where you've decided or, or just not dealt with an area that Jesus has the desire to transform? And maybe most significantly, is the 10th area a spiritual area of your life? 
C.H. Spurgeon, the great preacher, in his sermon on the sluggard, says this poetic-sounding line. If I must be idle, let it be seen in my field and my garden, but not in my soul. If I must be idle, let it be seen in my field and my garden, but not my soul. We all know the perils of American Christianity, certainly Northeastern American Christianity, and that is this. We are very motivated people in lots of areas, but we always have the temptation of making the soul the tenth thing. Church commitment, spiritual commitment to prayer, committing to loving other people. If these things start to be our tenth thing, then we as a community, we we will be mocked. We talked about at the very beginning, the desire for our community to be one of wisdom. Wisdom says, don't just say, I'm doing nine out of ten things right. Wisdom asks, what is your tenth thing? It doesn't take much for us to become like these back alley shady people ourselves. We can become foolish and snarky and sluggardly right up there with the best of them. And so we must continue in our hearts, in our words, in our actions, and in our encouragement for one another to avoid the temptation of those stooges in the back alley. Let's pray together. Lord, I know most of the people in this room, and I know that they are not fools or slackers or scoffers. But I also know that we all can be. There's times in our lives and places in our lives where we are foolish, where we are slacking, and where we are mocking. And so, Lord, I ask that even as we close today that your Holy Spirit would just reveal in our hearts, where do you want us to grow in wisdom? What is an area of our life where we are acting foolish or we're acting slackerly or we're acting like a scoffer? Lord, reveal that to us even as we sing, even as we fellowship and talk with one another. We pray that you would reveal these broken places in our lives and make them whole by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is his name we pray. Amen.